if I'm able to demonstrate return on investment, either two metrics or data points, you're able to see value add, right? Whether it's the number of blocked attempts that we've, we've, we've successfully done over a period of time, or the amount of patches we've applied, the implications of those patches, those types of things, the severity levels of different things, the systems that we have, the devices that we have that currently have AVs on them or the ones that don't have AV, our ability to identify threats, whether it's an industry or even directly to us as an organization. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Andrew Obedeiru, CISO of Cobalt, about his role as both head of information security and IT, how he chooses a threat matrix to explain risk to the layman, and how that enables his team to better quantify the value cybersecurity brings to the organization. In cybersecurity, generally, the greater the efficacy of your program, the fewer major events you'll have. But how then do you quantify that value and leverage your own data to advocate for more investment into essential programs? Andrew, good day to you, sir. Thank you so much for being on the show. For the uninitiated, if you would please, tell us who you are. Introduce yourself, please. Thank you very much, Steve. My name is Andrew Abadir. I'm the uh, CISO for Cobalt. In that capacity, I'm responsible for information security and IT. Prior to joining uh, Cobalt, I was the head of information security for BBVA, Corporate Investment Banking. So that's an interesting, and I think fairly unique combination of responsibility, Andrew, where it's head of IT and CISO. We had a, a guest that's been on part of the show, Martin Littman. He is CISO and I believe CTO. I hope I don't mess that up. Sorry, Martin. We're starting to see some of these combinations happen. Is that two specific roles or is that kind of in in title for a particular reason? What exactly is that seemingly hybrid position? That's a good question. A lot of, I mean, there are two school of thoughts to that. Some people feel it's an absolute no-no to do that because it takes away the independence to truly evaluate what IT is doing when you bring everything under the same umbrella. And then it makes it much more difficult. But most organizations adopt that approach for a variety of reasons, whether it's uh, where you are in the organization or trend, if it's a startup, resource issues, it needs to still kind of manage those two sectors together. For us, it's worked well because uh, we have two separate teams, even though I'm you know, responsible for both uh, teams, but the team still operate as an independent outfit, right? We still kind of like provide that oversight over IT. IT has a key role in driving technological uh, missions for us. We on the security side, we also evaluate what IT is doing, identify risk within that process. So for us, it's worked well for us. And I'm, because I've had backgrounds in both sectors, I'm able to manage that and still bring a level of independence to it. It's certainly heavily interconnected. I, I used to say, and, and others have, I'm sure, you know, I was once asked by someone very high up at a very important company that they wanted world-class security. And I had to ask them at the same time, do you also want world-class IT? Because you kind of have to have both on that journey. And the example is, is, uh, in, in this case I brought up, is even something like an asset list, where at that point didn't know what assets we had. And 
how no matter how much money I spend on some capability on the security side, I can't really make up for that easily, right? It's you kind of have to have both and having a leader that's setting vision for both, I think could be incredibly helpful. It might be burdensome some days, it might be stressful, uh, but I think the direction at the top would be helpful. Oh, no, no question at all, because uh, a lot of the things we do integrates very well with IT. Now we're deploying Okta. Okta, while it's an IT function, does have a security component baked into it as well, right? So to your point, on the asset list, we just completed a classification, data classification. We couldn't have done that without understanding what our assets are. So there's always that touch point with IT. So having everything under the same umbrella, to say so, certainly helps in terms of having a clear view of your overall set of security and technology stack, and then understand the true mission you can develop from that properly. So yeah, there's tremendous advantages to having it together, but as the organization scales and get bigger, it becomes much more of, a, of an issue, depending on the industry as well. So if you're in a highly regulated environment, it becomes very difficult to manage both together. Andrew, do you have any advice? Because most of positions are one or the other, but they're still pretty rare to have both. I mean, ultimately, they, they typically report to somebody, but it, to own both is a little bit rare. And for the listener that is thinking about a career change or maybe in the process of interviewing, if they've only ever been a security person, or maybe they've only been an IT person, one or the other, and never been responsible for both, do you have any advice, just generically, as you're going through that process of getting to know the new company, is there any school of thought or any question that you might make sure you include or just general advice uh, if, you're, if you find yourself needing to own both? It's an excellent question, Steve. I think for me, it was relatively easy because I started my career as an IT person and I transitioned into security. So it makes that transition a lot easier. But if you've never done anything in IT, or you've never done anything in security and you either want to be able to take on both of them, it's a bit of a challenge, right? For a variety of one, if you're looking to set an agenda, if you're looking to set a mission, you have to understand at a very visceral level what IT is all about, what the position of the organization is, how do you define a strategy if you've never really worked in that space at all. So you might have to ramp up very well or have good managers that will bring you up to speed. But in order for you to be effective in both roles, I think it's helpful to have some background in uh, IT or information security in order to be able to effectively manage both teams successfully. You said it well there, and I was going to mention it if you didn't. If you've not done one of the two, you had better have good lieutenants in those supporting roles, because otherwise you're going to get caught off guard and it'd probably have a, an unfriendly outcome if you've never done it before. Yeah, it's a, it, an interesting hybrid role. Earlier, we spoke, and it's one of my favorite questions to ask a guest on the show is, what's the worst thing about our industry or maybe the most difficult thing? And there's lots of reasons. And, and I ask it not for us to sit around and complain, but to instead move past this difficult thing. And you, you had several perspectives on what the worst thing could be. And the first one started with just general perception. Talk to us a little bit about how perception uh, plays a role in, in one of the worst things about our industry from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, that's true, Steve. I think the perception thing is usually within the organization, not just the industry as a whole, right? Most organizations, their perception of security is just another platform function, another cost center, right? It's always hard to quantify the value security brings to the organization, especially when uh, you haven't had any in major incidences or breach to your critical data. 
And it's always difficult for you to make the case. So most security professionals, whether it's in the course of you trying to get additional budget for additional initiative, there's always questions coming, which typically don't go to other business units, right? And there's always that. And I understand where those questions are coming from. Unless you have a good appreciation for what security uh, is bringing to the table, the value we bring to the table, uh, it's always difficult for, you know, whether at the executive level or even at the board level to see the value that you bring on board. Now, that perception is changing now because of the proliferation of cyber crimes and all of that. So people generally are taking time to understand what that means to on the organization and how it could impact the bottom line of the organization. So that perception is starting to change. Now, as an industry, the way security is looked at, it varies, right? There's an expectation that, oh, security ought to be able to do everything, right? The user community shouldn't do much when in fact security is everybody's task, right? right. Security can do so much. So I think for me, it depends on where you are, your ability. And that perception obviously also affects how you're able to make your case. So it, it, makes, it makes it a lot more daunting exercise for you when you engage the board, right? So if they don't see value in what you bring in because you've not been able to demonstrate that in real time, or there's no KPIs or, or stats you can use to demonstrate value at, it becomes you have to go the extra mile um, to be able to make that case on a consistent basis why security adds value um, to the business. That I think is an interesting point. I like this point. I came up in IT and then moved into the role of security analyst, intrusion analyst, and then upward into the leadership and senior leadership, executive leadership ranks. But one of the struggles for many teams, and you, you, you said this, is if nothing has happened, how do you show value? Meaning if there hasn't been some sort of attack or newsworthy event, how is value shown? And, and I, I have my own opinions on this. One of the statements that stuck with me is, you know, always having to reprove security. What's your perspective on, on that? I think there's always a story to tell, even if nothing has happened. And I would argue that something's always happening, but that's, that's, enough, that's my point, not anybody else's. What's your take on that? No, you're right. There's always something happening, right? But then, so what I've adopted over the course of my career as a way of countering that point is to be able to bring some kind of matrix into the discussion, right? So if we are told discussing budget or even security initiative, if I'm able to demonstrate return on investment, either through metrics or data points, you're able to see value add, right? Whether it's the number of blocked attempts that we've, we've, we've successfully done over a period of time or the amount of patches we've applied, the implications of those patches, those types of things, the severity levels of different things, the systems that we have, the devices that we have that currently have AVs on them or the ones that don't have AV, our ability to identify threats, whether it's an industry or even directly to us as an organization, the more you're able to tell the story a lot around that, certainly helps to bring value to the organization. Even though some people will still look at that, eh, mm, we don't know. But the more you're able to use data points to make your case, then it becomes a lot more obvious, right? So those that are truly genuinely interested will see the value being added through those discussion points. But there's some folks that will continue to see security as just a platform function. You're never going to be able to win those people over. But the folks that matter, they're truly interested in seeing uh, what we do. Those matrices or data points will certainly help convey that message. Yeah. And there's a couple of points. One of the things I want to get to is we covered a little bit of what some of the, the worst things about the industry, what those are. We covered that. You, you get a little bit into the solution now. You kind of gave me two tips on this, but I, I think that 
the two you mentioned that I think are most interesting is understanding the business in sufficient detail to start to kind of re to reset of what how do we get around these worst perceptions. And then the other one was, and this many of us suffer from this, is only speaking in technical terms, that that's a, a tough lesson that I think you said you learned maybe earlier in your career, but I think affect, affects probably all of us at some point. How do we make that, that change? You mentioned a matrix earlier, and we have to use something that's consumable by, by the audience. So is that, are there more than one matrix? Are there several? Is there advice that you have in order to make it consumable with those two things in mind, right? So understanding the business in sufficient detail and not speaking too technical. How do you walk the line there? That's a very good question. And I, again, most of us struggle with that, but I think the key is to develop some of your soft skills as well, right? So most, most technical professionals, as, as they climb up the ladder, it becomes a challenge, right? They're so buried in the weeds, right? And you have to be able to get out and have a big picture view. So for me, yes, understanding the business is critical because you, if you don't speak the language of the business, you're not going to be able to get across, right? So understand at a very detailed level, the strategy of the organization, what makes the organization tick, what is the organization is really about, and how can security align with that? So your ability to align with those organizational objectives certainly puts you in a position to speak to the key players within the organization. So the second thing you also mentioned is how do you demonstrate that? How do you go? So for me, when I engage my board or or fellow executive, I try not to get too technical. I try to be able to convey without using fear to drive that message. So that's where matrix comes in, KPIs, KRIs. So if we have you know, performance indicators that we can go to to demonstrate what we are doing, we certainly will leverage that as against using hyperbole so to drive your message home, right? So it's, it's a combination of different things. You have to understand your audience. You have to know what you're trying to convey. All of that will come into play as you make that message. So if you're going for a budget discussion, you adapt a different approach. If you're going just a routine quarterly update to the board, you also would adapt a different approach. So understanding your audience, their level of know-how relative to the topics you're looking to speak on certainly helps. So that would help manage you know, the level of details you want to demonstrate. Technical knowledge is also important at times. It's good to get into the weeds at times if the situation calls for it, but you don't want to make that the go-to approach, right? Because you have to be able to tailor that message to your audience. You wouldn't want to be in a spot where you couldn't back up the statement, I think, but you wouldn't want to start also with just in with the tech because you'll lose them. But every now and then you'll get challenged and you'll have to, there's a, a ringer in the room or there's somebody who knows a little bit and they're going to, they're going to quiz you. I've had this happen many times. Yeah. So I think you have to have, you don't want to get caught not knowing. And if you're not a technical CISO, that's okay. But I think that you have to be able to break the point down into kind of three levels of, of increasing detail if you're going to give a, a high-level presentation. you got to be able to dive a level deeper and then a level deeper again. Otherwise, you can have negative results. I don't, but you don't want to start, you don't want to start at, the, at the technical bits like I have in my past. No, no question. No question at all. I completely agree with that. You have to do your homework, right? There's always somebody who's going to press you. And you don't want to be in a position where you say, oh, I don't know. Oh, I'm going to get back to you. You know, that's just not acceptable. You lose credibility very quickly. I mean, at that level, you should understand insufficient technical detail to speak to the board. You're not talking to hackers or whatever. So you ought to be able to hold you on in that conversation to explain to them 
whether you go into details or you go into, you keep it at a very high level, but you have to be able to walk out of there making them understand what you came to deliver. The theme, if those that listen to the show, if they listen to what I've shared is you have to have, provide them comfort and confidence in your ability to execute on your mission, comfort and confidence. And it's, and that's an ever-changing thing and there's no firm definition, but when you leave the room, they have to think, ah, this person knows their craft and they have a path set and what they have shown us today and what they have requested is reasonable from a position of authority, I think is my kind of formula for that. And I, I want to ask, you mentioned a budget meeting being different than a normal status meeting. And I think that that part of budgeting is also getting cooperation. So it's asking for a million dollars and it's also getting help from the other executives to see it through. Now you're in a spot where you own IT and security, but you still need help from other organizations to make sure testing occurs agreeably, that there's no disruptions, that you have help in, in seeing success. It starts with budgeting. How is a budgeting meeting different than a status meeting? What are the things that you go in with that make sure that you lead with that comfort and confidence in that meeting? What's different? The budget discussion is certainly different from routine update, right? So two things you want to keep in mind, right? First, if you are looking for a brand new budget or it's just a reoccurring budget, or you're looking for some big security initiative or IT initiative, I think the key thing to do first is to understand as you approach that process, what are the crown jewels of your organization, right? What needs to be protected as part of your day-to-day -day business operation? How critical are these crown jewels? And by crown jewels, I mean like your data, your systems, your devices, all of those things your organization need to function. How protected are these crown jewels? If they are not sufficiently protected or your budget discussion is around these crown jewels, then it makes it a lot more easier for you to be able to convey that message because now the board is interested in what could potentially impact their bottom line, right? So the better you're able to articulate that and tie that to your budget discussion, it changes uh, you know, the outcome of that conversation. And two, you also want to be able to uh, understand the risk to the organization, right? Secure the risk to the organization, whether it's losing competitive edge or market share or reputational impact, financial losses. So if you don't get the budget to execute against a specific initiative, these are the potential implications of not doing that. Uh, without necessarily driving fear, but you want to be able to state facts along those lines. So, so when you articulate your message in that way and you tie that to your budget discussion, uh, the board certainly, or even the executive team, will certainly see the relevance of that request, right? And then also having an ally, another ally that is with you or not, but that understand, you know, what you, the implications of what you're discussing, whether it's on the engineering side or even on the sales side, people that you've had interactions with that this particular security initiative would also benefit. So it's good to have that ally as you approach those discussions so they can second some of the points that you're making. And that certainly conveys the message a lot better from a budgeting standpoint. Now, if you're doing a routine update on a particular threat to your organization or to your industry, that's a whole different approach, right? So yeah, you want to you know, highlight specific implications of a breach, right? If your industry is seeing a pervasive type of threat, and then you want to be able to mitigate against that. You want to demonstrate your levels of preparedness to address that kind of threat. And then it's important to go to, hey, organization B and C had this issue. This, will, this is what happened to them. However, this is where we are. We've implemented a number of these different measures. So no cause for alarm, but we're going to continue to evaluate our, our levels of preparedness controls we have in place, et cetera, et cetera. So I think one is more aimed at trying to alleviate concerns on the board's part. The second is more to say, hey, this is what we need to do. 
So the two different approaches, but you have to be able to understand what you're looking to convey and how best to get that message across. So you've added things, but when you answer questions, I have I have more that are that that are forming as you speak, which is actually a really good thing. In speaking with a new budget request, you said something I think is very important, and it sounds simple and basic, but I see many people mess it up and. It is having an ally, so a, a new budget request, and having someone in the room, and I can tell you how powerful this is, if you present on a topic, and in the right moment, that other individual, that other VP or SVP or EVP, just gives a nod and say, this is absolutely the case, and she says that something as short as that, it can take it from, well, we're not sure, to sounds good, let's do it, let's move on to the next topic. Yeah, absolutely. And you even mentioned sales in there, which is if you continually help drive sales, meaning if there is something you can add, a capability that makes the sale, the people who make money for the company, make them look good or make them better at their job, you're almost impossible to defeat. I think that is incredibly sage advice. And I would ask you now that it doesn't happen in the room, though, meaning unless you're just friends and you're going to cover each other's back all the time and you're aligned ahead of time, maybe that happens naturally. Typically, it takes work ahead of time to have an ally in the room. You have to do a lot of work. There's preparation. Talk to us about that. For those that might not know what I'm talking about or that may not have been in this scenario, having an ally in the room in a budget meeting, requesting new money, trying to show business relevance, what do you do to prepare for that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's incredibly important. So it's not, hey, I'm going to go talk today. Can you back me up? It's based on weeks and months of relationship building, right? So I typically, the way I approach, not even budget, but just my day-to-day, I have standing meetings with all the colleagues, right? Head of, head of sales, the VP of sales, head of customer service, head of product development. So we have touch points. We discuss initiative, right? This is what we're working on. These are the implications of this for your product. Building a product security team. And I will sub product initiative. So now, if that now comes up in the course of a budget discussion, the chief product officer is already aware of some of those details because of the background discussions we've had around it. So it's easy for him to weigh in in those discussions. So in my routine touch points with them, all of these different initiatives will come up. So it's always important for you to build allies along those lines. You want to be aligned with them because security can have impact across the board, right? And if you don't do much, you're just going to be isolated, right? So you have to know how to engage. I know how to build relationship, how to bring, make security relevant to all of these other business units because security is truly relevant. Security has an impact on what most of these business units are working on, whether it's product development or even our sales team. So from a product perspective, there's a number of different things they do with us that we also do with them. And we can improve on that by making yourself much more relevant or making your team a go-to team as part of their uh, concept or design process. So once the chief product officer is now including to some of those details. If that comes up in the budget discussion, he can certainly, you don't need to discuss with him hours before the meeting say, hey, I'm going to be doing A, B, and C. Can you back me up? But those conversations are going to resonate with him because you've had those conversations in previous discussions you've had with him. So it'd be natural for him to say, yeah, this is impactful to us, blah, 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 blah. And that may, that may exactly be what gets you across the huddle because they, they are now looking for that additional viewpoint that will drive that message home. So you've covered... A lot there. And I think it's something that's completely worth studying all of what you've said. 
And I think another thing that maybe have helped you in this process growing as an executive is your past as an auditor, meaning you had to explain things in a way that a wide audience can understand. Is there a a benefit or maybe a detriment? Did you ever being an auditor, was it was it did you see that as a superpower or a hindrance or both? Did it help give you skills that others didn't? Meaning for the auditor listening that's thinking about changing over, in lieu of all this other that we're talking about, what is there anything there that you would give advice on? I meant to ask you this earlier because I get this question. Anything that comes to mind, either the good or the bad? Oh yeah. I think there's more good as you go up the ladder, you know, having because as an auditor, or when I worked for a big four. Even though I wasn't technically an auditor per se, but we did a number of audit type functions. So that's that when, when you're delivering reports on those, whether it's findings or whatever, you're already engaging the executive team of those organizations. So your ability to understand how to navigate those very treacherous conversations, it becomes very useful as you engage, as you grow up in your career. And that's something you do on a regular basis when you're doing a number of audit engagements, right? So you have findings that the board, that the executive team may not necessarily agree with. And you don't know these people from anywhere. You're a consultant. You're part of a consult engagement team. You exec, you, you've completed your task. Now you're presenting findings to the board. So those conversations, your ability to navigate and how you lead not so palatable information to them and still be able to get them to invest more money in helping you remediate what needs to be remediated certainly prepares you for those conversations. If you've never gone, any, don't, gone through a process like that and you do all of a sudden you, you're thrown into this role and you have to get in front of the board, it becomes very difficult for you to know <laughs> yeah. how to convey those type of messages. So, but having gone through that over uh, my years in consulting, it certainly prepares you. And you know, you're not intimidated. You know what facts you need to go to, how to present those facts. And so it certainly helps to have another background because it's all about discussing things that may not be so you know, palatable to the board or to the executive team, but you still have an obligation to convey that message. And so I think going through that certainly prepares you for these, these kinds of roles in the future. Well, I think that you get to share maybe some bad news. You get to share a recommended go forward, but you really don't have to take necessarily the blame for the circumstance, right? You don't really, there's not a permanence to the job, right? You're there to help. You're an outsider. You're not going to get as much in as much trouble or there's not as much like, so it's, it's good practice. And you're still probably very stressed out, especially if you're junior on the team and having to present. But it's, it's still different, though. Like, and I, but I think that it's, it's valuable practice being in the room, just sitting in the room. I'll tell you, the first time you're in, a, in an ELT or SLT or a board meeting, if you don't know, you don't know. You don't know how people act. Where do you sit? Here's one. Where do you seating in these meetings is important. I didn't know this. You don't just, <laughs> you don't just sit anywhere, Andrew. Or at least I did. I, there was a place you were told. In fact, I went in there once and the person, I won't say who, or I don't want to divulge, but the person I was with had a seat and I was all the way around the corner. But until you, you know this, you know, and I had to learn that on the fly. And, and, you know, so that's, that's, uh, I, I wasn't really going to discuss seating charts with you today, but that's a small thing. Like that's a, that's a, if, do you know what the room is like? Do you know when to speak? Do you know how long you should speak? Those are all little ingredients that, that go into it. And the only way you learn is to spending time there. No, that's, that's so true. I mean, you know, as a consultant, you don't know. You don't know. Some clients are very aggressive, right? They come, they just yell. I mean, I, <laughs> I agree with this. You know, 
So now you have to be able to kind of like comport yourself and still be able to convey that message. So if you've never dealt with people of those kind of temperaments, it becomes very difficult for you to, uh, I mean, there's like hot and cold with, with some of them. You just don't know something will trigger them and they just go off because they, they come in very defensive. You're essentially trying to point out issues to them. So they also have their own dynamic coming into that. You're not going to put me on the spot. You're not going to make me look bad before my boss or whatever. So they come prepared to try to rip you out as well. So your ability to stand your ground and still maintain the facts and comport yourself is very important. So when you do that over and over and over, I mean, it gives you the lessons, right? You need to deal with this kind of situation in the board situation. So you're right. It may not be your job situation, but you have an obligation, at least from my perspective, you want to grow that engagement, right? So if you screw it up, then it becomes a lot more difficult for your, for your organization to expand their presence within that company. So the more you're able to comport yourself, entertain what may not be so pleasant in the course of those discussions certainly would help grow that business within that client business unit. Kind of going back to an earlier point, we were talking about using a matrix to describe the situation and, and some of the, the topics that were discussed were maybe more foundational, meaning antivirus and patching and assets and, and kind of baseline ingredients. One of the things I like to ask of a leader is maybe you take over or maybe now you're on your journey and you're becoming more mature. You have more of a mature and known environment. How then do you show value or what matrix then do you use, right? So we're not, you know, you've kind of talked to the, to the leaders about assets and patching and vulnerabilities and, and that's all kind of done and they're very comfortable with it and they're kind of getting comfortable and they're less interested in hearing that because you've fixed it all. It's all done now. And so when you're in a more mature environment, what then do you begin to look at? What advice do you have? How do you shift your messaging or do you shift your messaging? That's an interesting question. And it's a real one because the more mature environment you are, you're more maintaining. And then you can easily get complacent if you don't find a way to keep yourself relevant, right? So what we've done in the past, in my previous organization, certainly not a COBOL, my previous organization is to now we used to have a thing that gives us a sense of our overall security posture, right? You know, relative to our competitors, right? What are they doing that we're doing differently, right? If there's a situation they contended with, how prepared are we to tackle such a situation? So when we have those discussions, it would go from internal issues, right? While those are still important, but then we want to be able to have a broader discussion. How secure are we as an organization relative to some of the trends we're seeing, whether it's some new trend coming up or some pervasive trend that most of the industry sectors are dealing with? So that becomes a key discussion, right? So it's still in the, it's still in the line of what we're doing internally, but now the conversation shifts a little bit to a much more broader set of issues that we have to contend with as against getting to the nitty-gritty of what we're doing from a control perspective to a much more broad organizational conversation. How well are we aligned with the business? How well are we going to help drive the trajectory growth of the business from a security standpoint? How can security align more with the objectives of the organization? So there's always some way to make yourself relevant without getting into specifics, you know, impacting uh, day to day. I think that at that point, you might be a little more into storytelling rather than showing sort of facts, right? You're sort of taking them on a journey to say, okay, this is, this is, as you mentioned, this is what we're facing. This is even earlier in our chat, you mentioned this is uh, what others in our industry peers have faced, whether it's a failure or a, a concerning condition has, has met them, some sort of supply chain issue or 
you know, and you're going to tell a story on that rather than a patching percentage or something, right? Yep. Yep. Now, one of the things I mentioned, because I mentioned mature environment, this always kind of gets me and you coming from an audit background, I can kind of pick on this a little bit too. Typically, if you're being evaluated from the outside, maturity is thrown around often, right? And it's, it's some sort of element of a CMMI type rating of, you know, is it defined? Is it repeatable? Is it documented? All these things. But I always had trouble because maturity doesn't match efficacy, meaning those are two very different things. You can be very mature. And when a crisis happens, you cannot be very, you can be poorly effective is what I'll say. And is there a perspective you have between the two? And do you differentiate those? And how do you differentiate between these two concepts? Yeah, I mean, they're very different concepts and I differentiate. You know, a, a good example would be incident response plan, for instance, right? So the mere fact that you have a complete document, right? Or a very mature document does not necessarily equate to the efficacy of that process, right? So for me, you just, you have to find a way to test that efficacy separately from what you may consider quote unquote mature process, right? So building the process is one thing, but then how effective would this process be? The situation does pop, right? So for us, we've done tabletop exercises to further demonstrate effective or efficient our incident response plan is. And then we found out that even though we've had that plan in place over a year, folks within the team still don't know what is expected of them, right? Our first line of defense don't know that. You know, the team are not cluding up what the escalation procedures are. So it's not enough to say, hey, we've built a document. We've had it signed by all the key stakeholders. We have a mature process. Uh, it's, it doesn't equate to efficacy. You've got to be able to test that separately to ensure that, yes, what you have in place is consistent with an efficient process. And if the situation does call for it, everyone is clear on what their roles and responsibilities are. I think that's when you can say your efficacy is truly up to par. I think that's an excellent example. I think tabletop exercises are overlooked. Even if you cannot synthesize it perfectly, I think that looking for gaps in ownership, looking at pauses in action, looking at you know, introducing new thoughts or new ideas, new, new conditions that may not have been thought of is a fantastic way to get your hands around your ability, not only for your technical team, but also for the people that are going to be impacted by the failure, by this condition, this incident, ransomware, supply chain, outage, failure, whatever that may be. And it could be something as simple, something I worked on a long time ago. We had to send a letter to millions of people and we didn't have the ability to send that. And no one had thought about that before. We had to print and put in an envelope and put postage on millions of letters. And no one had ever thought about that. How would we contact our customers this way? In millions, I think 79 million of them, in fact. How do you do that? And so it's, and that's a, that's a business discussion. That's a process discussion. And uh, it's not a fun one to be had when you're in the middle of a crisis. So, so drill, drill, drill. So how do you answer, this is, I was asked this once, after spending a bunch of money and building a bunch of stuff after a big problem, the question was, and I'll just ask you, so Andrew, are, are we now secure, right? That's a valid, that's a question that I've been given many times in my career at many different levels from many different people. And it, it's a tough one. So the CEO asks, and let's say you're working at a hypothetical company, maybe not a cobalt now, but someplace else. Maybe you're an advisor to a CISO. Maybe you're a, a board member. I don't know. But the question is asked, are we now secure? Is there a correct way to answer that? 
there's never a correct way to answer that. You certainly don't want to be so <laughs> you don't want to be so affirmative in that in answering that because that may come back and bite you, right? So the key thing is to say we're as prepared as we can be. We are doing everything to mitigate whatever perceived or real risk we have. You know, I mean, there's never there's not a short answer to that. That's what I'm essentially trying to get at. And there's always that temptation. So yes, we are because you want to demonstrate it. You know, you're in front of the CEO. You want to quickly tell him what he wants to hear. But the CEO is going to walk away from that and say, "Oh, entry total is 100 safe. So we're not worried about." And tomorrow something happens. Hey, you said it. We're good. You know what I mean? So it's always important to resist that or to jump and say, "Yes, we are." You want to be able to address the nuances around those questions. It's never an easy question to ask. And I've been asked that. In the past, my goal is always say, yes, we're as prepared as we can be, or we're as secure as we can be, but that's never 100%. Nobody can give you uh, assurances of 100%. We're going to continue to evaluate risk, whether real or perceived or emerging, and then take measures to show that we are, we're in a position to deal with that if it does occur. So that would be the best way to answer that. But it's always, there's a temptation to say, yes, we are secure, you know, especially when you've just gotten a budget for a million dollars. How do you say you're not secure? <laughs> right. Well, and now we're in a place where, you know, you look at supply chain problems and third-party risk where whoever you use for your email, you know, you have made the decision that it wasn't, it didn't make sense for you to manage your own email services, or maybe you're using cloud services or whatever, and you've done your due diligence, you're using a large vendor, I'm not going to name any vendors, but you're using the biggest and the best with with all the good options and they can still have a problem they can still be breached which means you have a breach and there's little that that beyond the ongoing due diligence that in this example that Andrew can do because you don't run their security right you can assess them you can get their documentation you can review them you can view review the risk but ultimately it's if they have a problem so answering the question even if you believe yes we are secure or you know that's the wrong answer but if you believe it there's a risk there that's greater now than ever before. And that's a, that's a tough one. That's, that's an additional story to tell that produces risk. So I want to talk with you a little bit about interviewing. It's one of my favorite areas of, of discussion. And I think it's something that gets overlooked and, and these things don't get shared unless you have very close friends that are interviewing. I like the idea of setting expectations in interviews. You know, So uh, I think many times and this goes along with a question of, are we secure? The same kind of thing is asked when you interview. It's like, well, are you going to make us 100% secure? You know, that could be a question. People get that. Or what's your method, Andrew, of making sure we're 100% secure? The CEO is asking you this at a hypothetical company. What advice do you have for the CISO interviewer? I know you've recently done some interviewing yourself. So do you have a perspective there? <laughs> that's, that's a tough one. Tough one for a variety of reasons, right? So when you're looking for a job, there's a fair amount of pressure on you through that process, right? So, and somebody offers you, and you know you're at the tail end of the interview process, and they say, oh yeah, I mean, can you guarantee us, blah, 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 you know? The odds is always going to be like, oh yeah, sure, why not? Oh, of course, I could, you don't even know the environment well enough, right? But you'll be inclined because you want that job. You're going to be like, oh, sure, absolutely. I think based on what I know, I could give you assurances, but You'll be, you'll be essentially misrepresenting, you know, yourself by doing that, right? But I understand why most people do it. It's not because they don't know better, but they don't want to be in a position where they have derailed their ability to get this job by answering, you know, giving them the answer, which is the right answer, but may not be what they want to hear at that point in time. So what my advice would be to say, well, 
I don't know enough to be able to give you that, but I, once I come on board as part of my 90, I'll be able to give you a definitive view of what I think we can do to put ourselves in that position. Um, but for me to speculate right now would be, you know, it would not be the appropriate thing to do. I mean, it, it's always very difficult to answer that. I mean, I can easily say that now, right? But if I was in front of a position that I really, really want, I'm not sure how I'm going to answer that question. That's just a big fact, right? So there's always a temptation to say, oh, yeah, of course. You want to answer yes, yes, yes to everything because you want to give them the, the assurance that, hey, we got the right person. He's going to come in here and, you know, turn moon into sky, whatever. It is going to change everything for us. So, yeah, the, the, my advice would be try to tamper with some reality and be honest and, you know, just, um, you know, tell them that, yeah, what I know now is going to be difficult for me to give you that answer definitively. But if I'm given the opportunity to come on board and I, I'm able to do an, a true evaluation, I'll be able to tell you definitively what, what would it take us to get to a point where we can say we are fully secure or how to you know, enhance your overall security posture. You want to give them a sense of confidence that, that you're the right person. But I think part of the message, depending on your own personality and the culture of that company, is letting them know just exactly what you said in a way that resonates to say, look, because of my experience, because of the confidence in my ability to build a program that's relevant, I am unable at this stage to promise anything. But here's my plan of how I would move forward with it. And, th and then I can make assurances. But until I know more, I can't tell you more. But here's how I go about, you know, here's my, here are my methods of success from my past and here what I think would be successful here. I've had CISOs that have come back, newer CISOs tell me that they sort of overpromise, <laughs> and doing so out of, not because they're not out of ego, but just out of enthusiasm for the new opportunity. True. And it, this costs them. One of the other things you told me was, don't rush to answer questions. And I think that's a, it was a version of that. And I think that's a very important thing for two reasons. One, if you're in the big meeting, whether it's an interview or board meeting, people in authority are not in a hurry to answer anything. And if they are, they're not overly verbose. They don't rush to answer. Technicians often rush to the answer because they know so many things and they want to share. And here's how smart I am. Or here's, but not rushing to answer, I think, has a, a bigger picture where. It just takes time to give a good answer, meaning you have to be more familiar. Is that what you meant by that or was it something else? But I wrote, I wrote note of that when we had our earlier chat. Don't rush. Yeah, that's precisely what I, what I meant, uh, Steve, because it's important, right? Because you want to be able to gather your thoughts, right? There's, again, there's always that desire to just give a quick rebuttal, a quick answer. But, but in that situation, right, you want to weigh your response and give the right set of answers. So it was something I had to learn not to jump into answering questions. You know, it's all part of leadership. And as you grow, you realize you just want to be able to take it. There's no rush. If you wait an extra minute to answer the question a few seconds, nobody's going to penalize you for that. Your answers are generally obviously better if you just rush that. You don't want to say something and then go back and have to, you know, recount something or correct something. So for me, I'm always very measured in response to those very loaded questions, especially in that, in that kind of setting, whether it's with my fellow executives or with board, I'm always very measured to ensure that I'm giving the right best answer I can give at that point in time. I don't want to come back or have somebody misquote me or take my, my position out of contest and then later on I can't defend that position. So I always take a very measured approach to how I answer those questions. So I'm going to go back in time now, take us both back in time. 
this is one of my other my my key questions is what advice would you give to your younger self and i want to add and this kind of goes back to some of what you already mentioned younger steve would have signed up for any kind of work didn't matter what it was steve was was physically and metaphorically hungry and so there's no limit to what's you know for for money for a job especially a professional job making a transition from from laborer uh farmer construction worker to a professional role i, I said yes uh, doesn't matter stay up all night cool right i want to go back to younger andrew earlier in andrew's career what what advice would you give your younger self as it relates to career and 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 sh- maybe even choosing the right company the right fit what's your perspective there uh, do you have advice for us yeah my my perspective is to be to be mindful right to be clear of what this job truly entails two things you want to be clear on your ability to execute against that job and also evaluate the company right so I, there's always the urge to take anything that comes, especially when you have nothing on your plate, right? So it's easy for me to, you know, they say the high sign is always 2020, right? So my advice would be there's some organization I've gone into in retrospect, I would have never, you know, ever going there. You know, what I realized for my time there, it left me with very bad experiences. So typically when you're going through interview process, you want to be able to evaluate, not just them evaluating you, but you also evaluating that company, see if this is a good fit for you. Do you, would you, is this an environment that you can flourish, that you can really do well? The folks that you interview with, how you engage, how they engage you, what they say, everything is important. It goes to how that organization is set up, the culture, structure of the organization. I think it's important to factor all of that in, into your decision-making process. So my advice to a young man would be, you know, be measured, evaluate the organization and make the right decision. That is something I'll tell you that I very rarely considered. Really, I didn't consider it at all when I was younger. I didn't think twice. And maybe, maybe I was in a position where I didn't have to. Maybe I was my own ignorance kept me from having to think much about it. And even when I had bad managers, bad working conditions, I just did it. And I, and I wish I wouldn't have. I, as my father used to say, I wish I would have fired more of my managers, is what he would say, right? Fire. When, when you have a bad scenario, when you have people that are treating you poorly, that don't appreciate the effort, that just exploit you to leave, it's not worth it. You know? And I, I put my career above pain, if you will. And, and I think that's something that, that many technicians, many junior people learn. And then when it's time to think about it seriously as an executive, they don't know how to do it. They haven't thought about it. And they don't know about cultural fit as in this example a ciso and so they still get it wrong and so that's why i think it's so important to bring up it's not a some would say it's a soft skill i would argue it's a hard skill meaning in the terms of its value going into a new opportunity i completely agree it's definitely a hard skill and i understand why people don't do it because you're desperate at that point yeah but you people still be desperate and still make the right decision i've known folks that have said and i just don't know and i couldn't comprehend at the time i said really you have an offer you're not taking it i I just couldn't comprehend it but now i can look back and understand why you know people took a much more different approach to it you know i never truly evaluated jobs in the company i just reset the company for purposes of interview not whether i'm a fit or not i was more inclined to get the job i don't care what the for the environment looked like but over time I realized it was important because it could it could tarnish your image, it could destroy your career. If you if you get in the wrong place, it could even affect your psyche as an individual. So 
it's important for you to do that evaluation as well. Don't rush into an offer. Just uh, make sure it's the right fit for you because it will serve you better down. Andrew, one final question. Uh, We ask this of all of our guests. And to you, I ask, what does being a new CISO mean to you? Good question. Well, for one, it gives me a seat at the table, right? So where I'm able to influence things better. On a personal level, it is an accomplishment that I'm truly excited about. But organizationally or professionally, it puts you in a position where you're able to truly execute against a mission and a vision, right? You have the support of the organization. You're tasked with the ability to move things forward and change the direction of things. That is an incredible amount of uh, responsibility placed on you. And there's this desire not to let the folks that have entrusted you with this responsibility down. So there's, there's this all to give it your, your all for that reason and a lot more. So for me as a CISO, Personally, yes, it's a height, it's an accomplishment, it's a pinnacle of your career, which is very good. But on the professional side, it gives you a seat at the table. You're able to now influence the direction of things uh, in your organization. So it's an incredible position. I'm excited about it. I look forward to uh, doing my best in this role. Andrew, thank you so much for making time for us today. You've been a wonderful guest. I've learned so much. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure talking to you. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.